in my sociology classes, I would use uh, books like the autobiography of Malcolm X, which had a profound impact on me. But I'd also have them read the Wall Street Journal. I wanted them to see different perspectives, Mm -hmm. not that there's one right way or wrong way. But clearly, knowing what background I came from, what background they were in, I really wanted to try to expose the more general world to them. I actually started the process of interculturalizing or internationalizing the curriculum. Hey, this is Achim Novak, executive coach and host of the My Fourth Act podcast. If life is a five-act play, how will you spend your fourth act? I have conversations with exceptional humans who have created bold and unexpected fourth acts. Listen and be inspired. And please rate us and subscribe on whatever platform you are listening on. Let's get started. I am just delighted to welcome Dr. Neil Goodman to the My Fourth Act podcast. Neil is an internationally recognized authority on globalization, global mindset development, and cultural competence for global corporations. Global Dynamics, the company he co-founded in 1983, and I'm stressing this because Neil had this incredibly long run, designs, organizes, and implements programs that support global mindset development, cultural competence, global leadership, and diversity and inclusion in leading Fortune 500 companies. And I just want to add this, Global Dynamics has worked with absolutely everyone across industries. Neil also served as professor of sociology at St. Peter's University for 33 years and retired from that role in 2005. And just this spring, at the age of, and I hope this is correct, Neil, 75, Neil sold his beloved firm, Global Dynamics, to create space for his next chapter. Hello, Neil. Hi, Achim, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. Yeah, uh, you are, (laughs) before we dive in for listeners, I I just scratched the surface with Neil's incredible accomplishments. I'm sure we'll learn more about them as we speak. One of the things that I know about you that I want to invite you to talk about is your your passion for social justice and appreciation of differences between people started when you were just a young man, you were still a student at the height of the civil rights movement. Can you take us back to that and how your interest, just how that was formed? Sure, thank you. Uh, um, I really don't know why I was picked to do this work It certainly has been, I call it, an unplanned life, which has been truly exceptional, so rewarding. Back in 1963, I was invited to attend a a leadership camp for teenagers. My mother had encouraged me to do that because she wanted me to build on my resume, which academically wasn't all that great. So I went to it. Unbeknownst to her, it was actually a a civil rights camp. And that was probably much to her (laughs) surprise. (laughs) Again, I don't know why, but I just, I could feel it in my heart. I could feel it in my brain that I was meeting with young people my age, again, high school sophomores, going into junior year from different 
backgrounds, races, religions, ethnicities, just hearing everyone's stories, I realized how profound bias and prejudice, bigotry are, and how it's a real cancer for humanity. I want to emphasize that I did this from a, a background of probably you know having my own biases clearly, yeah. uh, not knowing what they were until I was at that camp. It, it was one of my first lessons to realize that that if you're going to do something in this world, you, you've got to try to listen to other people. And I've always learned the most from people who are different from me. So back in 63, I came back from the camp. I started getting involved as an activist. I started running leadership programs for teenagers. Let me stop you. So when you yeah. say I became an activist, I started leadership programs. Where did you do that? I grew up in Jersey City, yeah. a working class home. My, my family was certainly working class. So, and I think to some degree, because I came from a less wealthy family, let's say a poor family, it got me to appreciate others more than if I had been born to a wealthy family, mm -hmm. where I would have just taken some of that privilege for granted. So that helped. But so in 63, in Jersey City, I was attending Snyder High School. I start, tried to start a civil rights group in the school. The uh, principal heard what I was doing, called me into the office and said, you know, stop doing this. I said, okay, well, <laughs> you know, can we do something? And he said, well, I'll let you make a, a little speech before an assembly. And I wrote a little very innocuous poem, really ridiculously insignificant, but he, he wanted to see the poem. I read it to him, showed it to him. He immediately offered to suspend, to suspend me from the high school which would ruin my academic career, obviously. Uh, he called my mother, who was you know, working full-time at the time to keep us going and to pay for my college tuition. And she came into the office. He told her what was going on. He gave her the poem. And again, you have to remember, she's a working-class Jewish Republican, okay? Mm -hmm. So, you know, very different, you know, very Eisenhower Republican. And she turns to the principal and says, Mr. Gutierrez, I'm the head of the uh, women's auxiliary for World War II veterans. And I, my husband, and all of our friends, we went to World War II to stop people from acting the way you want to act. And if you want to prevent him from speaking like this, I'm going to go to all the veterans organizations in Jersey City, let them speak out to you. And he immediately apologized and said, no, he's not suspended and all the rest. I gave my speech. No big deal. We started a, a brotherhood committee, which to him was having a tape sent between New Jersey City and Sweden. That's uh, not what I was about. Uh, he said there was no race issue in America or in a high school. Obviously, there was. That's sort of how I got started. I invited uh, the YMCA, the CYO and other groups to uh, join me. So we tried to be as diverse as possible. And we had some very good meetings. Unfortunately, at the time, the CYO decided not to support it, even though the Pope was very much in, in charge, involved in ecumenical uh, movements. Ironically, at that retreat, the civil rights retreat, there were two Jesuits who were speaking on the area of religious diversity. And I had always been taught to watch out for, you know, for priests because they always try to convert you. Ironically, mm -hmm. they 
asked me if I might attend St. Peter's College so I could improve the diversity of the student body and help Catholic students better understand Judaism. Ironically, I think I did more to teach Jews about Catholicism than the other way around, but that's another story. Well, there were so many delicious things in what you just said. Without me telling my own story, there's a moment in my life when my mother surprised me and became my ally. That was transformational for me. And I was going, how beautiful that your mom knew what to say in that moment. That's just gorgeous. Now, as I listen to you, I'm thinking of three tracks in Neil Goodman's life. You know, you're describing young activism, but you also had a 33-year academic career and you had your corporate consulting career. And even though the substance of your passion is probably somewhere in all the way it was expressed in different contexts was different. So if we can just break this down for our listeners, one reason I wanted to speak with you, Neil, is because you're clearly a long-distance runner and the longevity is interesting and the courage to then move on and do something else is also interesting. So if we can talk about your academic career, 33 years, professor of sociology, you got a PhD in sociology from NYU, you taught at, at St. Peter's. I also I taught college for a while at NYU, as you know. And when I think of college teaching, I think of the moments where you go, this is why I'm doing this. This is amazing. And there are also the moments where you go, why the hell am I doing this and putting up with this nonsense? So can you give us an example or a story for each of those opposites, which we're always reconciling? Sure. And certainly the positives way outweigh the negatives. I mean, to be paid to learn, uh, which is what you are as a professor, is the greatest job in the world. So, you know, how can you turn down a job where they're going to pay you to learn, to share what you've learned? The highlights for me was helping the students at St. Peter's, again, who were all from working class backgrounds, first generation college, as I was, to see the world differently, uh, to experience the world differently. I, I had the privilege when I went to St. Peter's to have the Jesuits encourage me to study overseas, which I never would have thought of. Mm -hmm. And not only did I study overseas, they encouraged me to study at Hebrew University of Jerusalem in Israel, beautiful, which was not a Jesuit college, obviously. Yeah. And it was in 1967, right after the, the major war in the Middle East, when Israel occupied parts of Jordan, the West Bank, uh, Egypt, and Syria. And so there was a lot of tension going on. The, the war was in June. We arrived in July. And I immediately went to work as a volunteer reached out to Arab students, Israeli students, uh, students from Africa that were attending. So when I think about my academic career, I wanted to share that experience with the students at the college. I set up an international studies program so they could study overseas. One of my very best students, who's Italian Catholic, parents immigrated from Italy. I encouraged her to study overseas. She went to Italy actually to study. She later went to Johns Hopkins and graduated with a master's in international studies. And she later in life just joined the State Department, 
but she was in charge of the U.S. embassy at the Vatican for about six months, during which time she invited her parents to come visit her and stay in the U.S. embassy at the Vatican. Sweet. Can you imagine that? So, yeah. And they, they own the grocery store. I mean, again, it's those kinds of experiences. I have students still writing to me that find me on LinkedIn and so on. And they say, Neil, uh, you, you really influenced my life. That's by far and away. In my sociology classes, I would use uh, books like the autobiography of Malcolm X, which had a profound impact on me. But I'd also have them read the Wall Street Journal. I wanted them to see different perspectives, mm-hmm. not that there's one right way or wrong way. But clearly, knowing what background I came from, what background they were in, I really wanted to try to expose the more general world to them. I actually started process of interculturalizing or internationalizing the curriculum and led a lot of faculty uh, seminars on internationalizing the curriculum. No, so it's, that, I'm, I, one thing that strikes me as you're talking is your, your enthusiasm and passion for what you do is just infectious and I really feel it. And I have a bunch of you rather not talk about the challenges. I think that's part of life and part of moving forward is how we navigate those. What comes to mind there for you? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I was extremely fortunate that I had myself invited to the East West Center, which was a think tank in Hawaii. Yeah. And as a result of that experience, I came back and that's when we launched Global Dynamics. And so the challenge in academia, such as it was, you really can't be a prophet in your own time. I was trying to make changes, but couldn't make the kinds of changes I wanted to. The college president wanted me to join his cabinet, but only if I could follow what his goals were, which I didn't always agree with. So I didn't join. But at the end of the day, after 35 years in academia, I was getting bored. I was teaching the same thing over and over. And I was doing teaching the same thing in a two-day seminar at major corporations. Unlike the students in the classroom who said, well, will this be on the exam? The people in the corporate world were saying, boy, I really need this. I wish I knew this sooner. I wish my boss would take this course. So there was so much feedback, positive feedback from just two days of training that I didn't get in academia. I have to chuckle as you're saying this, because as somebody who's also taught at the university level and uh, has done similar corporate work, what I love about the corporate work people want to immediately apply what you're doing. Yeah. Now, it's not, it's not preparation for a future career. It's no now, you know, and, and that imme- so you have an immediate impact. That's profound, isn't it? Yeah, it's so rewarding. I, I can't tell you, you know, not just reading evaluations, but getting emails afterwards from people. It is that immediate feedback that you don't get in academia. So let me ask you the entrepreneurship question because a a lot of fourth actors part of the fourth act can be as oh maybe i'll start a little organization or a non-for-profit or something around something i'm passionate about and many people are and i include myself you know i think of myself as a serial entrepreneur but i felt like i don't know what the heck i'm doing you launched a company called global dynamics with your wonderful wife, Barda, in 83. So this is an almost 40-year run, which is insane to me. 
take us back to the beginning because you have an organization, you need to have clients, you need to find work, you have the passion, but you need to build a business. Uh, what are some of the stuff that you and Varda faced at the beginning? Well, probably the biggest problem we faced was I went to uh, get advice from this organization called SCORE, which is part of, of the this yeah. Small Business Administration. And I, I laid out what I wanted to do. And these were retired executives from big corporations. And I told them what I wanted to do, what our plans was. And they said, you can't make any money doing this. Uh, no corporations interested in cross-cultural understanding. You know, uh, just forget it. You're wasting your time. So, I mean, so part of it was both being an academic, neither my wife or I ever took a business course in our lives. And so we were doing this as a dream. But I guess my ignorance helped me out because I was very <laughs> persistent. I've been working since I've been 10 years old. So I've always been a serial entrepreneur one way or another. But uh, I'll say with Global Dynamics, I was giving out a lot of free speeches to professional organizations. And we gave ourselves a year and a half or we were going to close down Global Dynamics. We were going to close down Global Dynamics in a January that November, just before Thanksgiving, I gave a, a speech to a professional organization. That was the week of Thanksgiving. The following week, I get a call from one of the uh, learning heads at AT&T. AT&T at the time was the largest corporation in the world. Mm -hmm. They, By law, they were not allowed to be international until about two or three years earlier. And most of the people who worked there, they were either from New Jersey or Indiana, they had no passports, had no desire to be global. Fortunately, they had asked me to um, write a program for them. Unbeknownst to me, they were promising that course to the, vice, the wife of the vice president uh, for uh, international. I was able to convince them to let them give me a shot at teaching it, not just creating the curriculum. They wanted to own the curriculum. I said, no, uh, it's my intellectual property. I'll let you use it, but I, I need to own it. So the, the challenges were... And maybe it's the advantage, again, of being so ignorant <laughs> about everything <laughs> against us that, you know, we just pulled forward. And, and as a result of that one free speech I gave one month before we were going to close the global dynamics, we wound up training over 120,000 employees of AT&T wow. all over the globe, teams, families going overseas, you name it. So there were so many wonderful stories from that talk forever about some of those cases, but just amazing how much experience we got. And because AT&T owned Bell Labs, there was a lot of gravitas and status associated with being a consultant to AT&T for globalization. I was chuckling again internally because I, I know you're a humble person. And <clears throat> when you said as well, I didn't know what I was doing. You knew enough to not give them your intellectual property. <laughs> so that was a very good starting point. And I think I just got a sense of just the scale of your impact with your first engagement. You already talked about the satisfactions of working in corporate environments, corporate entities. I know when I read your introduction, you know, I, I mentioned sort of keywords like creating a global mindset. I don't know if I said this one is, I, I know you really want to help leaders and teams work well, I would say, across cultures with people from different cultures. Other than AT&T, 
if you were to share one story from your incredible career that that sort of encapsulates the beauty and power of that work, helping leaders work mindfully and thoughtfully and respectfully across cultures. What story would you tell? I mean, this is not purely the cross-cultural side, but it's uh, more on the cultural diversity side. Mm -hmm. I got involved in helping hospitals build their cultural competence of their staff and their employees, the doctors, the nurses, everybody on the staff. So we're asked to create a cultural competency program for first by the American Hospital Association for their Office of Diversity, and I gave seminars for them. But then I was asked also by Florida Hospital, one of the largest hospitals, the largest hospital in Florida, to develop a program for them, for their leaders. So we designed a program as sort of a train-the-trainer type of program for their top, I'd say, 100 leaders. Mm-hmm. We did this in person. We Each leader was in charge of a particular area. So one might have been in charge of food services. One might have been in charge of medical education. So all different areas, community outreach. So there's all different aspects of the hospital attending. And as part of the program, we asked each individual to set up a plan where they would build cultural competence within their own team because they're all responsible for teams. And then with the approval of the hospital, we set a deadline that within we were going to have a retreat within one year where people are going to report on their progress, what they've accomplished. And the Office of uh, Diversity collected some of those as well. And at the one-year retreat, we had maybe 10 particular leaders present, you know, sort of the best of the best. I can't tell you how rewarding, how inspiring. I mean, literally everyone who made a presentation got a standing ovation. Mm -hmm. They all learned from each other. You realize that you're making a difference, not just in their lives, but in the patients' lives. They learned how to better care for people who are Muslim and other religions. So again, to me, that was one of the most rewarding experiences I ever had. And uh, as a result of it, I, I wrote an article together with the head of the American Hospital Association's Office of Diversity. And I wrote an article with the head of diversity for Florida Hospital. So again, it's one of the things that I think makes us successful. I bring our clients in as much as possible, being co-presenters or co-writing articles so that it's not me. It's really our clients are our sales force. It's only because we have such a relationship of trust with each other. A word from your sponsor. That's me. I invite you to go to the website associated with this podcast, www.myfourthact.com. You will find other equally inspiring conversation with great humans. And you will also learn more about the My Fourth Act Mastermind Groups, where cool people figure out how to chart their own fourth acts. Please check it out. And now back to the conversation. I appreciate a lot of what you said, but that that sentence I wanted to stress because people are taught taught so many marketing things. And much of it is very good advice, but I have run my life successfully on the simple motto as my clients are my sales force. And I do very little to sell my 
clients do the work because we do good work. So I want to just second that for anybody who's listening and would like to start a business is if you, if you do great work for your clients, why the hell would your clients not want to refer you to other people? Of course they will, because they've been empowered and enriched by what you did, right? We could spend so much time talking about global dynamics because this is the fourth act podcast. I want to go to acts and new acts and then to just create some context. You and I were introduced through a professional acquaintance, oh gosh, um, 18, 19 years ago. And we discovered that we both were moving to Florida pretty much at the same time in the same summer, ended up living 15 minutes from each other. Go figure. So we were clearly meant to know each other. But it was something that I remember. I was at your 60th birthday party, which was held in a restaurant in North Miami Beach. And even around that time, and you and I hung out a little bit, you were you had already started to think about selling your business and letting go of global dynamics. I mean, you live in this stunningly beautiful place in Aventura. You know, you'll have the, uh, the cliche Florida resort lifestyle. And those thoughts were percolating. And you turned 60. It took you until you turned 75 to make the sale. So I want to use you almost as a case study for others who have something they're passionate about, they're thinking of moving on, but it just isn't easy. So would you tell us, how did you navigate from the initial impulse? I think I may want to sell Global Dynamics at some point to actually doing the sale, which you did literally in the last few months. So just now. I assumed I would retire. I would sell by 65, not 75. I kept looking for the right opportunity and also the right frame of mind. I mean, the, one of the things we had going for us and against us was we were very, very successful. We, as I said, we never had a business development person. We don't do any uh, marketing or advertising, but clients keep calling us and it's exciting. It's exciting work. It's global work. It's taken me all over the world, spoken in China and Korea, Japan, Germany, France, Italy, you name it. To turn away some of that was very hard. And so I just, it kept lingering. But fortunately, I had the tremendous opportunity to attend, I guess, your very first fourth act mastermind group. It wasn't until I attended that group and heard from other professionals who were sort of going through the same life and professional experiences that I finally had the, the courage to say, time is enough. <laughs> give yourself, I said, working since I've been 10, give yourself some time off. I have two phenomenal daughters who I'm very proud of, both very successful in male-dominated corp, uh, organizations and professions, four wonderful grandchildren. I need to take some more time off spend time with them. As you said, I live in a great place. I don't think I've been to the beach more than 10 times since I've lived here. And that's 15 years. I know you go to beach all the time. And I want to do more of that for sure. That's And I'm 10 minutes from the beach. So at the end of the day, I need to get out and enjoy life more. 
I want to drill down a little more on what you just said, because what I heard is, of course, you were your successful business, amazing opportunities kept coming in, and it was just hard to say no when stuff was just coming in. You weren't chasing the work. The work was chasing you. But I have a hunch that, again, as you entered your 70s, there was part of the work that was still almost like when you were teaching at St. Peter's, that was, this was still very sexy and exciting. And part of it was, yeah, I know I have to do this to run the business, but this, I don't really think I want to do anymore. Can you talk to what was still really stimulating your soul and what was maybe feeling less appealing as you got older? Sure. I, I think I'll do the second part first. I very much realized that the speed of change today is slower than it will ever be again in my lifetime. And that goes for everybody. I see the change. I see the innovation. I see people morphing into different technologies, etc. And uh, I found that, you know, it's kind of hard to keep up with that speed of change. And I also saw other areas for potential growth. I'm very committed to Global Diversity, on the Global Diversity group on LinkedIn. So I want to be at a higher level, perhaps a consultant or a person that can guide organizations that want to be global, want to be more successful in inclusion. Uh, I've always been committed to global inclusion, uh, the inclusion, making organizations more globally inclusive. And so I guess the challenge was having a bit less physical and mental agility to go forward yeah. and knowing that I found an organization that I could sell the, the company to that was going to take it forward that had I mean we're two people we're three people basically myself my wife and a head of programming Dana Klein and and she's going to be staying with that new company but knowing that that new company can take this so much further when maybe when we started, we were the innovators, the creators, but I see so much new things happening, inspiring things happening in the area of diversity. Nobody talked about diversity when we started Global Dynamics. Even when I went to that first camp, it was called a brotherhood camp. And the goal at the time was to teach people to tolerate one another. Ah. Imagine, I, tell, I start my seminars by saying, tell your person sitting next to you, you're going to tolerate them for the next hour or two. You know, people, oh my God, but that's how far we've gone. So I'm so happy that we're at a place in time where diversity is accepted and understood as a benefit for organizations around the globe. It's not just a U.S. thing anymore. Again, I'm, I says, speak with you and I know you personally, but I'm, I'm again struck by your, just your passion for life and for causes and things that matter to you. And because you literally just a few weeks ago, the sale went through. And you get to decide how Neil spends his time now. And if I'm uneasy, cliche is I'm sure everybody said, just slow. Everybody's probably said, slow down a little bit and smell the roses while you figure out what to do next. So number one, I want to know, are you actually able to slow down and smell the roses? And part number two is because your passion for things is so evident, 
I know you're going to channel it in some direction. Do you know how you want to express your passion, perhaps differently now that you no longer own Global Dynamics? Well, the answer to that is uh, no. <laughs> I, I would say so far I've been just as busy as I've been in the past because during the period of transition, I've offered to help the, the company that purchased us. So I've basically been working almost full-time doing that uh, introducing clients, organizing the transformation. Just yesterday, speaking to their senior staff about uh, how we do business, because it's kind of a bit unusual. We sold it to does mostly corporate, rather uh, public work, government work, not corporate work. So how different that is. But uh, again, I'll say this to all the listeners. I'm purposely giving myself three months. The final part of my transition with them will be the beginning of September, and I'm giving myself all that time after September, as much as I need, I'm assuming at least three months, just to do nothing except let things come in and not work, but let ideas come in, let the universe come in, understand, you know, get a better feeling for where I should take my next act. I'm not going to sit on my hands, obviously, but I don't know what it is. I want to let, let myself open to that. You know, what, what I so appreciate about your statement is, and I'm just thinking about, especially American culture, we are so conditioned to always make plans, right? And so the idea that for three months, I'm not going to make plans and just see what comes in, that's actually really radical because we're not conditioned to do that. So will you be able to just, have three months where you let things come in? Can you do that? Uh, we'll see. <laughs> I really hope I can. I know I, I was inspired by you and other members of our mastermind group to think about starting a, a podcast or uh, you know something like that, uh, or maybe a mastermind group. And uh, then I, I made the decision, no, I'm not going to look to do that yet. I will think about that. But I don't want to, I'm not looking for work. I'm, I'm looking for the time when clients are going to call and say, no, I'm not the one to help you now. And yeah. we are transitioning our clients over to the other company. So I'm looking forward to that time when you know, people won't be calling me. They'll be calling the other company. And the other company always has my phone number. And I'm happy to support them and deliver training for them or help them. Wait a minute. I, are you hustling work right now? Is that what you're doing? Are no, you just saying, call me? <laughs> no, no. I, I said that to the, to the company that bought us. <laughs> I'd love to complete our conversation with this question seems very pertinent to you because you, you, you keep reminding us that you, you've been working since you were 10. You were an activist early and that a common thread was your passion for, if I want to be simplistic, creating a more respectful, more just world. In this journey that's taking you to so many different places, what have you, Neil, learned about yourself that maybe you didn't know as a 10-year-old boy from all the different encounters you had as a college professor, as an activist, as a corporate leader, what have you learned about you? Well, again, it goes back to the fact that I don't have the answers. The answers are within the clients, within my students, within others. 
I go into a program knowing that there'll be somebody in the audience that's much smarter than me that I can learn a lot from that will help me in my journey to learn and discover. I know that it's critical to be interested, not interesting. I understand that to be successful, you really have to challenge yourself to see the world from multiple perspectives simultaneously. Again, I'm just humbled by what I learned from other people or from books, certainly from the mastermind group too. I'm a consummate learner. I'm a student more than anything else. So if people have been listening to you and are inspired by what you've been saying and and want to learn more about you or find you, where should they go? And remember, you can't send them to Global Dynamics because that's not your business anymore. So don't give us the Global Dynamics website. Where would you like to send people? Well, I would still say... Go to Global Dynamics for the time. No, you're not. It's not your business. (laughs) No, no. So so I am going to be starting a new organization, at least tentatively called the Neil Goodman Group. I haven't started the website, but we have the domain. We will work on the website gradually. So they can go to neilgoodmangroup.com and write to me there. I'm so happy to share anything from my experience with anyone. I have a list of things I've learned over the years. Happy yeah. to send that out. But there's probably so, multiple people out there who I can learn from. I'm always looking forward to talking with people. I guess that's one of the advantages I'll have now is the time to have more longer, meaningful phone calls where I've had to stop those sometimes when I wanted to continue. Do you respond to LinkedIn messages? Absolutely. I'm okay. heavy into LinkedIn. Awesome. Uh, yep. Well, thank you, I would say, first of all, for the gift of the amazing work you've done for decades now. And thank you for sharing some of this in this conversation. I'm, I love you, and I'm really, really grateful for this. Uh, the feelings are certainly mutual, and I look forward to, uh, again, building on our friendship and professional relationships. We will do that. So bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you all. Good luck. Like what you heard? Please go to myfourthact.com and subscribe to receive my updates on upcoming episodes. Please also subscribe to us on the platform of your choice. Rate us, give us a review, and let us all create some magical fourth acts together. Ciao.